Subscribe with iTunes, Audio Boom, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting app. And if you enjoy what you hear, like us on Facebook. Also, consider throwing a little cash our way by visiting patreon.com slash koreafm. And find more of our great content on our home on the web, koreafm.net. This month, six students from the University of California, Berkeley, presented their research and received helpful suggestions from Seoul National University professors at the 4th SNU-UC Berkeley Korean Studies Graduate Student Conference. I spoke with a few of the Berkeley students who presented and also with one of the professors who traveled with them to South Korea. I'm Laura Nelson, and I'm the chair of the Center for Korean Studies and a professor of gender and women's studies at Berkeley. The previous chair of the Center for Korean Studies is a professor, John Lee, who's been involved with Korean studies for 30 years or so. And he uh, had a prior academic relationship with uh, Cho Eun-soo, professor of philosophy here at SNU. And he wanted to help the graduate students at Berkeley make stronger connections with the academic world in Korea. So they arranged to have a conference where our graduate students could present papers and have them uh, be read and reviewed and um, commented on by SNU professors. So Professor Cho has been working really hard to make those arrangements, and it's been going on for four years, I think. Presentation topics varied greatly from student to student, with the first presentation focusing on a group of Koreans who traveled to Central America more than 100 years ago. My name is Rachel Lim, and I'm a second-year PhD student at the University of California, Berkeley, in the Department of Ethnic Studies, and my research looks at the ethnography, history, and culture of uh, Koreans in Mexico, South Korea, and the United States, and so it's a diasporic project that um, examines the transpacific circulations of culture, and in particular, I'm very interested in the ways in which Um, the memory of immigration to uh, Mexico becomes remembered in different diasporic spaces and what that means for um, our present conceptions of the nation. So in 1905, um, 1,033 Koreans were essentially taken from Korea to, um, to Mexico to work on the, um, the haciendas, the plantations there, um, uh, harvesting henequen, which was used to make like hemp ropes. Um, so this was a time of like massive Asian um, labor importation. So in China and Japan, as well as Korea, laborers were brought to places like Hawaii, to Cuba, to mainland the United States, um, and um, Koreans were part of this wave. Um, and what's sort of notable about this particular instance of immigration is that it occurred only once. It was technically illegal in the sense that the Korean government did not... Um, I guess, oversee the migration the way that they did migration to Hawaii. And because of this, it only occurred one time. So there was just this one-time instance that of people who moved to Mexico, and then they felt sort of cut off from the rest of um, the Korean diaspora and also from the homeland. UC Berkeley PhD student Rachel Lim's research focuses on this group of Koreans in Mexico through the 2004 novel Black Flower. Across novels of migration and diaspora and transnationalism, I think there's um, a really strong preoccupation of um, assimilation. So this idea of, well, when do Korean people stop being Korean? Is it the first generation, the second generation, third generation, when they stop speaking Korean, when they stop eating kimchi? Um, So there's all these sort of um, ways in which novels wrestle with the questions of authenticity and trying to arbitrate who belongs um, to Korea. Um, and I think there's a lot of different ways to approach this question. Um, some people look at physical appearance, some people look at 
like mixed blood. Um, other people look at uh, cultural attributes. Um, but what I think is interesting about black flower is that it sort of it complicates the temporalities of how assimilation functions because Kim Yonga, as the writer, goes back to 1905 and sort of recuperates these stories. And um, yeah, that's to me, that's the kind of what's interesting about it in terms of yeah, Korean identity and the way that it's taken up across really a very wide variety of Korean and Korean American novels. Korea's emphasis on English education was also discussed at the conference when one student described his research that identifies more than one type of English in current-day South Korea. I'm Ming Curran, and I just finished my master's at UC Berkeley in the group in Asian studies. So the communicative English is the English people use in their daily lives, right, when they're communicating with their, you know, foreign friends that Koreans are going to use when they go on vacation to a foreign country. This kind of thing is communicative English, right? Maybe the English they'll get when they watch, like, an American TV show. And the gatekeeping English is mostly the, the test, the English that you find on test that's very awkward to native speakers, English from the United States. But at the same time, this is the English that is kind of prized in Korea, this ability to pass the tests. And the, I think the, this diploma disease is just kind of a way of explaining that as people become more and more qualified, it creates a downward pressure where finally for a job that shouldn't require maybe any English because you're not dealing with any foreigners or anything like that, that now these jobs are going to require English competency and English fluency, or at least the test scores. So I think if my diploma disease thesis kind of is, uh, if, if, if that's kind of, if that fits, I guess, then I mean, you, it's really interesting to see, I guess, what happens if Chinese is, is added on yeah, to English or if it replaces English, yeah. And finally, I asked University of California Berkeley Center for Korean Studies Director Laura Nelson to describe some of the differences that exist between researching Korean studies in South Korea and at an American university like UC Berkeley. If you do your Korean studies scholarship in Korea, you get access to up-to-date Korean language materials um, and the best experts um, who are Korean native speakers and Korean native scholars on the issues of importance. And that's, you know, clearly a deep and important asset and something that the first few commentators on the presentations by the graduate students this morning um, noted. And there are some really strong programs in Korean studies in the United States. I would say right now, Berkeley has a lot of intellectual energy and capacity, but very thin scholarship on Korea among faculty right now. We've got some good graduate students, and the faculty who focus on Korea are great, but um, it's nowhere near as deep as being here in Korea. So there's just a lot of advantages to being in Korea. Um, it is true that studying Korea in Korea just places the scholar in a more awkward relationship if the scholar takes a critical stance toward anything in Korea. And there's a protective element to being at a distance and having um, funding sources that are not Korea-dependent. So I think that you can make a slightly more critical intervention in Korean studies from abroad than you can here. I actually do want to say that I'm really appreciative of the way that um, SNU has welcomed us over the last four years, um, and the relationship is incredibly productive. So um, we all enjoy coming to Korea and um, learning directly from here. I'm Chance Dorland for KoreaFM.net.